amazing. When he comes back, he's coming back in power and in glory. He's not coming back as the gentle, humble Lamb of God. You know that, right? When he comes back, every eye will see him, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I hope you're looking forward to that day. The only way you could possibly not be looking forward to that day is if you don't know him. But if you know him, you'll be looking forward to that day. We're up to John 17. We're at a section of John's Gospel where Jesus is about to be tried, convicted, crucified, and buried. He just finished his private ministry to his disciples and is now raising his eyes towards heaven, which the many of the theologians call the great high priestly prayer. He's raising his eyes towards heaven. He's praying intimately and intensely to his father. It's a great section of John's gospel. If you never read it, you need to read it. And he's not only going to receive glory from his father through his death, but he's going to give glory to his father through his death. If you ever wanted to see Christ's heart revealed, read and study this prayer. I encourage you to read and study the 17th chapter of John. You you will glorify God and His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no doubt. If you read it, meditate on it. As one commentator said, and I'll paraphrase, this prayer is the most profound and magnificent of all the prayers recorded in Scripture. Its words are plain, yet majestic, and simple. And at the same time, it's mysterious. He goes on to say, the veil is drawn back. And when we read this prayer, we are escorted by Jesus Christ into the Holy of Holies, to the very throne of God. The great Philip Melanchthon, friend of Martin Luther, he was a gifted theologian during the Reformation, gave the final lecture of his life. And in that final lecture, he lectured on this prayer. And part of what he said was, There is no voice which has ever heard, neither in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime, than the prayer offered by the Son of God himself. This prayer actually brought the great Puritan theologian, John Knox, to his knees in salvation. And when you read this prayer and you meditate on it I mean really take the time to think about it you can't help but glorify God you can't listen carefully you and I as Christians are here to glorify the risen Savior Jesus Christ the 17th chapter of John will motivate you to do that very thing to give glory to God in the highest and we'll be covering only the first five verses of this magnificent prayer. I'll probably do this in three parts. So it'll take me three months to go through it. But um, let's turn to John 17, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Would you mind doing me a favor? and Well, not me a favor, but... Do you mind standing for the reading of the Word of God? We 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your holy, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You may be seated. Father, we just ask you to bless this word. Bless our hearts to receive your word and let it bring glory to your holy and precious name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is an illustration from an article in Moody Monthly. In a conversation with Professor Morse, the inventor of the telegraph, the Reverend George Hervey asked this question. Professor Morse, when you were making your experiments in your room in the university, did you ever come to stand to a stand not knowing what to do next? Oh yes, more than once. And at such times, what did you do next? I may answer you in confidence, sir, said the professor, but it is a matter of which the public knows nothing. I prayed for more light. And the light generally came? Yes. And may I tell you that when this, when flattery honor comes to me from America and Europe because of the invention which bears my name, I never felt I deserved them. I had made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God, who meant it for mankind, must reveal it to someone and was pleased to reveal it to me. Now, I I love to hear stories, whether they were old stories or new, that speak about some person, whether they are inventors or sports figures or musicians and so on, that give glory to God for their success. I love hearing stories like that. If I hear a sports figure give glory to God, my heart is warmed. When I hear a sports figure just brag about what he did, it turns my stomach. Every good and perfect gift comes from God above. And that's why you and I exist. If you don't know it, now you will know it. We exist to bring glory to God. Pray that you may bring glory to Christ. Three points I want to bring to your attention through this text. Point one, you will glorify God through Christ when you pray. Point two, you will glorify God through Christ because you possess eternal life. And number three... You will glorify God through Christ simply because it belongs to Him. Point one, you glorify God through Christ when you pray. Point, uh, verse one again. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. Now, when, when I was studying this section of John's Gospel... There were a few things I could have focused on in our application. The first one was prayer, which many of the commentators focus on. They focus on the prayer of Jesus. And we will be speaking about prayer as we go through John chapter 17. 
And if you want to learn to pray in the will of God, study Jesus' selfless, intimate prayer here in chapter 17. I mean, just study it. And you'll really get a glimpse of how to pray. The whole prayer in 17 has three parts. We see Jesus praying for himself. Jesus praying for his immediate disciples. And then Jesus praying for all believers from every generation. And each part of the prayer has a theme of glory. Or I could have focused on the deep communion with our Heavenly Father. And we will be speaking about deep communion with our Heavenly Father as we go through this chapter. How Jesus focused on and delighted in doing His Father's will. Even when knowing His death was just hours away. But for verses 1 through 5, I chose this one, Christ's glory. And we live in a day and age, this is the reason, one of the reasons why, besides the fact that I just love to talk about the glory of Christ. But we live in a day and age in the church where Christ's glory is diminished by man-centered theology. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but all you have to do is turn on the TV and listen to most not all, but most of the TV evangelists, and it won't be long where your attention, it will focus on self, and how to get out of poverty, or to be healed, or to be successful, etc. And I'm not saying the Bible never deals with needs, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual, or financial, I'm not saying that. But as a Christian, your ultimate goal should be and must be the glory of God. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray in, John, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10? The first thing he brought to their attention was, he said, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, that for Jesus was his priority, the glory of his Father and obeying his will. And that needs to be our priority. Let's ask ourselves this question right at the beginning of this message. Is the glory of God and obeying his will your priority? That's something you have to ask yourself. I, can't, I had to ask myself as I was getting this together. Is the glory of Christ and his Father my priority? Let's get into our text. Jesus is now at the pinnacle of his earthly ministry, ready to be crucified on the cross. And John tells us that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Now, these words, you know, you might just pass over that, but what, what does he mean? What did John mean that after he spoke these words? Uh, um, I think probably... Every word he spoke to his disciples from chapter 13 to here to chapter 16. That was his farewell discourse to his disciples in the upper room. And now Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven. And this was a customary and familiar posture to lift your eyes to heaven. We see that um, when he went to Lazarus' tomb. He lifted his eyes to heaven. And this, of course, is not to be understood as a symbolic gesture of prayer, like that's the only way you could pray. But this is the way Jesus prayed. He looked towards heaven. But it was the guilt stricken tax collector, if you remember, in Luke's gospel who couldn't lift his eyes towards heaven because of his sin. But the sinless son of God had the confidence 
To look right into the throne room of God because of his pure heart. He had no shame. And the only reason why you and I could look towards heaven with boldness and confidence, as the writer of Hebrews says, is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Listen, when you and I sin, what's the tendency to put our heads down and say, God, forgive me for this mercy, for this hideous sin in my life? And then we look towards heaven. Right? But the reality is, even when we sin, we can look towards heaven and humbly ask God to Christ to forgive us. You know, he took our shame, didn't he? He took your shame. The other thing we notice in Jesus' perfect you is, is that in this prayer is Jesus in perfect, had perfect union with his Father. And he looks towards heaven and he was able to say, Father. Abba. In another, another section in Matthew, he says, Abba, Father. He uses that term father, pater in the Greek, six times. The gospel records 21 prayers of Jesus. On every occasion, he addresses God as his father. Only one exception when he didn't use the word father is the cry of abandonment on the cross when he said, not my father, my father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus is God. He's equal to God in essence and in being and in nature, but shows his submission and dependence on the Father throughout his life without diminishing his divinity. The term Father is a simple address, like a child to a parent. Father or Abba is a very intimate address, one of familiarity. Amazingly, after the redemptive work on the cross, and the blood of Christ was sprinkled on the mercy seat of heaven, you can now call your father Abba. Isn't that great? You could sit on your father's lap and say, Abba, Daddy. That's what it means, Daddy, Papa. That's, it's a very endearing, intimate, uh, uh, Aramaic word. Very, very intimate. Matter of fact, I think you could still hear Arabic children calling their fathers and their parents Abba. It's okay to run to the throne room and sit in your father's lap and speak openly and honestly with him any time. That's what Jesus did. And when Jesus died, he gave us the right to do that. And after Jesus looks towards heaven and addresses his father, he begins his prayer. Father, the hour has come. What's he saying? It's here. It's upon us. Many times we read in the Gospels, many times Jesus said what? My hour has not yet come. It's here now. It's upon me. Dr. Leon Morris said, this is that to which the whole ministry of Jesus has led up to. It was the hour of his humiliation. It was the hour of his glorification. Jesus was going to be glorified through his shame. It was the perfect time. The hour has come. Perfect timing by God. You know, God's timing is always perfect. He's never early. He's never late. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, God chose that moment when Christ should die. And I I believe literally not one second sooner and not one second later. 
You and I need to trust God's timing, don't we? I mean, we try to rush God in answering our prayers. Now. We want it now. We don't want to wait ever. If God's timing was perfect for Jesus Christ, for His birth, for His death, for His resurrection, why do you think God will be too late for you? Trust Him for the proper time for anything in your life. Christ, our perfect example, trusted His Father's timing His whole earthly life. Lord never had stress. Jesus Christ never had stress. He knew everything was in perfect timing with His Heavenly Father. We have stress, don't we? We have anxiety, don't we? Why? We don't trust His timing. And now the perfect time has arrived for the Son of God to not only be crucified, but glorified. This was his prayer to his Father. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And two things I want you to see here. We'll call them sub-points. Point one, as I said before, you glorify God through Christ when you pray. And the two sub-points ask this question. How do you glorify God? By praying, by being selfless, not selfish, selfless. The the implication here is, a prayerless, selfish life does not glorify God. Let's look at Jesus, our example. Jesus prayed. He prayed for his glory. Prayer in the Christian life brings glory to God, make no mistake about that. A professing Christian who does not pray is more than likely not a Christian. You can't be a a prayerless Christian, just like you can't be a fruitless Christian. There has to be... Now, now I know sometimes we struggle with prayer, but there's no such thing as a a Christian that never prays. You started your salvation with a prayer. Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. Come into my heart and my life, right? So... That's a continuation of prayer. Prayer glorifies God. You will never glorify God if you don't pray. Jesus said in John 14, verse 13, Whoever, Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that I will do. What? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. We are encouraged to ask anything in Christ's name according to the will of God, and He will answer us. And guess what? Answered prayers does glorify God. We should not seek God for what we can get out of Him, but we should seek God through prayer to bring glory to the Father and Son. All too often we pray to get things not concerning ourselves with God's glory. Does that speak to your heart? God will give us what we need. But we need to consume ourselves with His glory first. Simple. A prayerless life will not glorify God. A prayerful life glorifies God. Second thing, this sub points, is glorifying God is selfless. Not selfish, selfless. Some may read this verse and say, well, Jesus prayed for Himself, so He wasn't selfless. But... There's a few things we need to think about before we come to that conclusion. First, when Jesus said, glorify your son, he said that in light of the crucifixion that he was about to undergo. Suffering. 
The cross in the minds of the Jew or anybody was associated with shame, not glory. But Jesus knew that the cross was the Father's plan to redeem all sinners and to accomplish that would bring glory. Secondly, and this is important, Jesus prayed that his Father would glorify him. Jesus is praying, Father, glorify me, so that he could glorify his Father. Now that request that Jesus asked for was the most selfless prayer as it gets. Now listen carefully. Jesus was concerned more for the glory of God. Now hear this. He was concerned more for the glory of God than the souls of men. Now does that sound like blasphemy? But Jesus was concerned more about the Father's glory than the souls of men. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a British Christian evangelist, he said this, The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God. And then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God. In other words, Christ's consuming passion was for the glory of God. His Father. When men and women came to Him for eternal life, that brought glory to God. When we seek glory, we do it, you and I do it, at the expense of God's glory, as Dr. Sproul says. When, we, when Jesus asked the Father to glorify Him, He did not detract from the Father's glory one iota, because to glorify the Son is to glorify the Father. Remember, Uh, Jesus said this, he said, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you can't possibly honor the Father because the Father and the Son are one. So if you're glorifying the Son, you're glorifying the Father. We can hear Paul telling the Philippian church in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. What? To the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus always had his Father in mind when it came came to glorifying. And the Father always had the Son in mind when it came to glorifying. And now Jesus is getting ready again to glorify the Father. Guess how? Through the cross. Now that's... You can't make this stuff up. You can't. No religion comes even close to this. Think about it. Dr. Kent Yu says, asking the question, how does the cross glorify God? This is what Kent Yu says. He says, we see the holiness of God in the cross as nowhere else. We see his love of his holiness and his hatred of sin and his refusal to compromise with it. We also see his justice in his, command, in his condemnation of sin, even exercising his wrath upon his son who bore our sins. Finally, we see God's love for us in the vast cost he paid for our redemption. That's how the cross glorifies the son. The deeper our contemplation of the tragedy of the cross the deeper is our understanding of God and the, more pow- and the more profound our glorification of Him. Concentrate on the cross. Think of how Christ suffered and died for you and the horrific death that He bore, the penalty for your sin to 
take us away from eternal hell. If that doesn't make you glorify God, say it with me, nothing will. I would agree with Kent Hughes, and I hope you do, that the cross displays God's glory. You know what King David said in Psalm 19.1? He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Then let me ask you this. If David's saying that, how much more the Christ of Jesus Christ? The cross of Jesus Christ. How much more? I remember when I was a fairly new believer in Christ. And I heard this story about someone who asked a Christian, what horoscope sign of you? And the Christian wisely answered, the only sign I have is the cross. You see, the person... Gloried in the cross, not some demonic superstitious horoscope sign. The cross was that person's salvation in life. So we're able to glorify God through that. So now when people ask me that question, I say the sign. The, the cross is my sign. I think that's a great answer. I love that answer. Listen, when you and I pick up the cross and follow Jesus, we glorify God through our cross. You know, you and I have a cross to bear, as Jesus said. When you pick up that cross and follow Jesus, when you deny yourself, God is glorified. Sometimes you can't help but notice a brother or sister claiming to bring glory to God, but in reality they're trying to take the glory for themselves. You ever come across Christians like that? I have. They will braggingly tell you how God is using them to bring the multitudes to Christ. You know, got 20 notches on their belt. All the people they, they brought to Christ, you know. Um, and, and, and as they're speaking, you can't help but to think that this is more about them than the glory of God. And we probably all have done this from time to time. Is it a testimony that you're giving about the glory of God? Or is it a bragamony? <laughs> Let's get back to glorifying God and His Son, Jesus Christ. As that famous song by Andrew Crouch says in the chorus and then the second verse. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for the things he has done. With his blood he has saved me. With his power he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. Just let me live my life. Let it be pleasing Lord to thee. Should I gain any praise let it go back to Calvary. And I love the name of the contemporary band, uh, the Christian band, Casting Crowns. You ever hear of Casting Crowns? Modern, contemporary Christian band. They got their name from Revelation 4.10. Listen to Revelation 4.10. The 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And why did the 24 elders fall down before the throne and cast their rewards, their crowns before the living God? Because they realized that God alone is responsible for the rewards, and they stripped themselves of all glory and honor and cast it at the feet of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our glorifying God needs to be selfless. Point one, you glorify God through Christ when you pray. 
Point two, you glorify God through Christ possessing eternal life. Let's read second half of verse 1 to verse 3. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, one of the things which is hard to avoid when you're reading a text like this is the doctrine of election. Every Christian believes in election slash predestination. That's not the problem. The problem in the Christian circle is how one views election. Okay, You could view election one way, I could view it another way. But here's, here's the thing. It's either biblical or it's not, not biblical. There are no in-between. Either you believe God sovereignly chooses or elects a person for salvation, or the person chooses God by his own free will. Now, I'm not going to preach or teach on election because that would take more than a sermon to even scratch the surface of this important doctrine. However, every now and then a pastor or a teacher of the word comes across a text like this one and must address the subject, at least in part. And, and, and I will attempt to do that for the next minute or two, that's all. So now, I just want to say that at one time in my earlier days of Christianity, after Christ saved me, I was, must have been a Christian about 15 years already, I believed that I chose Jesus Christ on my own free will. And then... God accepted me into his kingdom. John, because you chose me to believe, my son Jesus, now you're mine. You belong to me. Now you're saved. Well, I come to think a little differently since then. The reason I came to ask Christ in my heart is because he put it there. I mean, he put it there. And the reason I believe that is that the scripture I mean, it's replete with texts that speak of the sovereignty of God in salvation. And I believe this is one of them. God the Father has bestowed on Jesus authority, given for the express purpose of giving eternal life to all whom the Father has given to the Son. The authority was given to Jesus to give salvation only to those the Father gave Him and was made possible through the cross. In other words... The ones that God gives Jesus are the ones whom God sovereignly elected or predestined to eternal life, which was made possible through the glorious cross of Christ. And so the theme of glory continues through the old rugged cross, doesn't it? You see, the world views the cross as a defeat. But the cross really is a sign of victory and glory. The church's salvation came through the cross. The bride of Christ came through the cross. The glory of God shines through the cross as God's judgment and mercy method. You ever think of that? God's mercy and judgment came at the cross. Judgment, the sin that Christ bore in our, in our place. Mercy for you and me. How great is that? I, I love that. That to me is one of the things that blows my mind. That at the cross, 
mercy, and judgment met. God never violated his justice because of the cross. And because of the cross, you and I, who God granted eternal life, glorify God through that eternal life which God has given us. Why? Because God determined it. I'll give them eternal life and they'll glorify me. We glorify God in salvation because God sovereignly saved you. And I believe uh, to truly give God all the glory is to understand you contributed nothing to your salvation. Not even your will, because our will was to run from God. As Paul told the Roman church, no one seeks for God. No one. As Pastor Brian always says, the doctrine of election crushes every ounce of pride out of man. Because we give nothing. God saves us and we give him all the glory, worship, and honor. That was a good quote. And I believe, truly, I I really believe this. You can't fully glorify God if you think you had something to do with your salvation. Here's what you did for your salvation. My sin. That's all I could give you. And he took it and washed it. Washed you clean and took your the wrath for that sin on the cross. When you diminish his sovereignty and election, you diminish his glory. Did God save you for your good? Yeah, sure he did. But ultimately God saved you to bring God saved you to be living trophies of his grace. That's what he saved you for. That's what he saved me for. God gave us eternal life first and foremost for his glory. But also, also that you may know God. Eternal life is knowing God. The reason Jesus also said that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom they have sent is because as John Calvin said, there is no other way which God is known but in the face of Jesus Christ who is the bright and lively image of him. So what does it mean to know God? The late Dr. Leon Morris said, to know him transforms us and, int- and introduces us to a different quality of living. Eternal life is simply the knowledge of God. The Greek, uh, Nida's Greek English lexicon of the New Testament says this, the word know comes from the Greek word kenosis and means to learn, to know a person through direct personal experience, implying a continue and continually of a relationship, to know, to become acquainted with, to be familiar with. In translating that word in John 17, 3, it is important to avoid an expression which will mean merely to learn about. Here the emphasis must be on the interpersonal relationship which is experienced. In other words, the believer doesn't know God in just an intellectual way, right? The believer knows God relationally experientially. Listen, we live in constant fellowship with God. Once again, what other, what other religions have, they, they don't have that. They don't have a relationship with the Father. We do. Christianity does. There's no personal relationship with God in the Hindu religion, 
in the Muslim religion, in the Buddhist religion, in any of the religions of the world, it's not a personal relationship with the living God. We know the Father. We know the Son. We know the Holy Spirit. You know, one of my favorite drummers is this man called Dave Weckl. Dave Weckl is an American jazz fusion drummer and the leader of the Dave Weckl Band. He was inducted into Modern Drummer Hall of Fame in 2000. Weckl attended Francis Howell High School in, in St. Charles, Missouri and graduated in 1978. He majored in jazz studies at the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut, starting out as the New York fusion scene in the early 1980s, Weckl soon became working, uh, soon began working with artists such as Paul Simon, Madonna, uh, George Benson, Michelle Camillo, Robert Plant, and Anthony Jackson. His most famous early work, though, was his where his popularity blossomed was with the Chick Corea Electric Band from 1985 to 1991. I just gave you a history of Dave Weckl. He's one of my favorite drummers. I love, if you ever watch this guy, you would say, let's get him to play it, not John Verdi, because this guy is amazing. Um, he, act he actually did a, um, a uh, Buddy Rich tribute, and he was the drummer for it. Magnificent drummer. I, I just gave you the history of Dave Weckl. A little bit about him, anyway. I may know a lot about him, but I don't know him. He doesn't even know I exist. And all I have of him is head knowledge. Not so my wife. I know Kim intimately, personally, experientially. We have fellowship together. You, the believer, knows God intimately, personally, and experientially. You have fellowship with the triune God continually. And that glorifies God. Point one, you glorify God through Christ when you pray. Point two, you glorify God through Christ because you possess eternal life. And the final point, you glorify God through Christ because it belongs to Him. Verses four and five. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we glorify God in eternal life because the glory belongs to Him. I remember one time when I first became a Christian. I'm always giving you the stories when I first became a Christian. <laughs> but I remember having a, a, a dialogue with somebody and they said, and I was talking about praising God and glorifying whatever I was telling him. And he said, what is God on an ego trip that He needs to be praised? Now, I didn't know what to say back then. But I know what to say now. It's not on an ego trip. You're on an ego trip. He deserves the glory and honor. Because there's no one before him or after him. He never was... He wasn't a created being. He always existed. Our eternal life belongs to Christ. So it stands to reason that glory belongs to Him. Your salvation is from the Lord. You know that? And because it's from the Lord... You and I deserve to give Him glory. Jonah said in his magnificent prayer in the belly of a, a great fish, in the second chapter, in the third uh, half, or the third part of the verse, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And Paul told the Ephesians 
in the second chapter, the fourth and fifth verse, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not something we contribute to Him. God determined that from eternity past to, to save you. So if our salvation can solely come from God through Christ, all the glory belongs to Him. And Jesus is now asking His Father for it to return. We must remember that during the incarnation, when that took place, the first Christmas which we're about to celebrate, Jesus Christ voluntarily gave up His own, his own glory for a season. Paul tells the Philippian church, second chapter, verses 6 through 8, he says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, Christ laid aside his glory for a time. Not his divinity, but his prerogatives, his status, his exaltation, and his glory for the sake of redemption and ultimately for the glory of his Father. And now he prays for his glory to return. It belongs to him. Isaiah said this, God doesn't share his glory with another, does he? It belongs to him alone. Quickly, what does the Bible mean to glorify God? I mean, sometimes we hear the word glory, glorify. We, we, we may not know what it means, but it means simply, in, in a general sense, that we praise and honor God. I like the way John Piper defines it. He says, glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect His greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all His attributes, and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. And Jesus says, he also said in this prayer, he says, he glorified the Father on earth, meaning all the work that he already did and was about to do on the cross, that glorified the Father. And Jesus was sent by the Father, he took on humanity, he preached, he taught, he performed miracles, was tried, he was convicted, he, cru- he was crucified, he died and was resurrected. He did exactly the work the Father asked him to do. Christ, his life, and his work glorified his Father. So should yours. God through Christ saved you, right? And whatever your father asks you to do, do it for his glory. Whenever he asks you to share the gospel, do it for his glory. When he asks you to help the poor, do it for his glory. When he asks you to fellowship with one another, do it for his glory. When he asks you to serve one another, do it for his glory. If he asks you to go into hostile areas and share the gospel knowing you can lose your life, do it for His glory. I don't know what, what He's asking you to do. I only know what He's asking me to do. But whatever He does, do it for His glory. As a believer, you and I are called to obey the will of God and do it for His glory and His Son, Jesus Christ. 
Another practical application, and you don't want to miss this, is Jesus completed the work His Father sent Him to do. Whatever God calls you to do in this life, don't abandon it. Complete it. Because I tell you, when you start a work, and pastors know this very deeply, you're called to do a work, and, and sometimes the easiest thing to do is to abandon that work. Whatever he calls you to do, complete the work. Does he call you to be a housewife and raise a godly family? Complete the work. Does he call you to share Jesus on your job? Do it with joy. Whatever he calls you to do, complete it and do it for his glory. Practice. Practice from your heart glorifying God. Because he deserves it. And it belongs to him. Another incentive, because... You're going to glorify God through all eternity. Get used to it. Through all eternity. Which is going to be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Christ's prayer was not only on the glory of the cross, but His glory in heaven, which He had from all eternity. You and I will glorify God through all eternity. When Christ returns, as we read before, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and make no mistake about it, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love Revelation chapter 7 verses 11 and 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine that? One day we're going to be hearing that. Let me conclude here. Your goal and my goal in the Christian life is to glorify God. More than anything you do in life, we want to glorify God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you think, do it for the glory of God. Whatever you eat, do it for the glory of God. If you fish, if you golf, if you play ball, if you're a housewife, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Let me wrap this up in a nice little neat package. Glorify God through your prayers. Let them be selfless. Seek first His kingdom, Jesus said, and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Let them be selfless. Don't always go to God and look for a handout. Let them be selfless. Selfless. God wants us to come to Him. Now, I'm, of course, I'm talking. If you're ready to get into an accident, you scream out, Jesus, save me. Of course, you're not going to say... Dear Heavenly Father, and the train is coming at you, please save me from this, you know. Glorify God first. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. Two, let the light of your salvation glorify Christ. You know, God sovereignly saved you. That you might know Him in a deep, intimate, relational, experiential way, right? Let this eternal life that you now possess... Shine for all to see that they may bring glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others. Your your light is eternal life that's emanating out of you. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A godly life, 
Listen carefully. A godly life can convince people that God has truly has the power to save and bring Him glory. And number three, glorify God simply because it belongs to Him. Also because we're going to glorify Him forever. Daniel 7.14 And to Him was given dominion and glory. He's talking about Jesus Christ here in the Old Testament. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And that all people, nations, and language should serve Him. His dominion, listen, is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Christ will reign in power and in glory forever and ever. I used to love this song by second chapter of Acts. He will rule forever and ever and ever. And we will glorify Him forever. And the church, listen to this. The church will have glory. You will have glory. Yes, all the promises, like we will be like Him in as he transforms our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, that's the future. C.S. Lewis said, the dullest, he's talking about, C.S. Lewis here is talking about when we're glorified. He says, the dullest and the most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Can you imagine the glory that Christ will bestow on you? What C.S. Lewis is saying is that if you had the glorified bodies and the glory that comes with it, people would want to worship you. That's how grand the glory we're going to have. But any glory you and I receive, whatever we receive will come from God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But for now... In this life, we go from glory to glory as we're being transformed into Christ-likeness. Amen. 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 As I get, as we get ready for communion and I end this message uh, for the Lord's Supper, let's reflect on the glory of God through His Son's death on the cross, which is represented in the elements we're about to partake of. This is what he accomplished uh, through his death and resurrection. Not only our eternal life, but glory and honor forever and ever. Without his work on the cross, you and I could never, ever truly glorify God. And when he rose again from the dead, the glory of Christ came alive in our hearts. And as Marty leads us in a song... Let's think about the fact that because of Christ's perfect obedience to the Father, there was glory in his death, which we're going to see as we partake.